You're listening to the Casual Mancatter on Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. So it's December 31st, 2021. The last day of the year, Australia already has the ashes. Now, a lot of people thought that that kind of thing could happen. But the fact that Australia have done it so easily, considering that they haven't really batted that well, is perhaps more surprising than one would have thought. England have gone a year where they've won one test match and played more test matches than any other team. So how does that set up their cricket going into the new year? And for Australia, who are going to have a much busier year next year than they've had this year, how does that set them up when they're going to be going to the subcontinent and playing in completely different conditions than what they have won out here. On today's episode, we're going to look back at the series so far between Australia and England, and we'll look at both teams and what the answers are, perhaps, for them both going forward. Now, I'm no genius, but I'll offer you my thoughts, as I always do, right here on The Casual Man Catter, on Thoughts from the Middle Cavern. say that Australia have had the fair share of luck in the series so far compared to England? Well, yes and no, uh, and I'm going to concentrate on England first and then look at Australia and look at what has gone right for Australia and, of course, probably what has gone wrong for England. Because after three tests, if you're going to be down 3-0 in very short space of time, and especially the way they lost in Melbourne, where the game went for two days and less than one session. There have really got to be questions asked, and also, where do the answers come from? Because the squad they've brought out here, just about everyone's had a crack, and yet they still can't seem to find what is good for them. Selections have been a part of that, and... Everyone's had their opinion on uh, the way that the three teams have been chosen so far. And even in retrospect, everyone would probably agree with what the majority are saying. Now, whether they were right at the time or not is neither here nor there now. Because that first test, when neither James Anderson or Stuart Broad was picked to play in that first test team, seemed like... The wrong thing to do. Now, obviously, everyone thought that Stuart Broad would play and that he would take up uh, the way that he bowled in 2019 to our left-handers, especially Warner and Harris, and that that would be 
a figurative part of the test match and the way that it panned out. Now, the fact that Broad didn't play and that they also didn't play Anderson meant that even though they had a reasonably good bowling attack in that first test, everything that was in the head of the Australians or may have been in their heads going into it was relieved immediately because neither Broad nor Anderson was there. And so the Australian batsman would have gone in thinking, well, we have the wood, no pun intended, with uh, <laughs> one of the England bowlers, uh, on these guys, that we are better than them and that we are able to see them off. Whereas they wouldn't necessarily have had that in their minds if either or both of Anderson and Broad had played. So that really was a bungle, a bungled selection by the English team. And while I agree that I wouldn't have picked both, I would certainly probably have picked uh, Broad for that first game to get him in Warner's eyeline and Harris's eyeline, and then brought Anderson in for the second test. Now, of course, we came to the second test, and both of those players came in. And so they took out Mark Wood, who was one of the two guys who seemed to have bowled well in Brisbane, and they then took out the spinner on a pitch that looked like it was going to need spin. Now, pink ball tests, as we all know, the ball swings and seams, especially under lights. And so England went in without a spinner, thinking that Joe Root would just be able to do the job. As it turns out, the ball did move, but probably not as much as everyone thought. But spin has always been important, and Nathan Lyon has always been an important cog in Australia's pink ball test match wins. So the fact that England went in without a spinner and without their fastest bowler just seemed to be, it was an incredulous thing to do. And so then we came to the third test, and Wood comes back in, and uh, Jack Leach comes back in, but they don't. They leave Broad out, <laughs> who has played one test, and now he's back out of the team again. Now, in all of this, it's it's very hard to work out exactly where England was going. So, the selections have been a major part, and that's just the bowling selections. Now we can come to the batting selections as well. Now, for the third test, they decide to drop Rory Burns, and they brought in. Uh, Zach Crawley. Now, in the interests of being fair, Rory Burns has had a reasonable, not great, but a reasonable year. He's England's second highest scoring batsman this year. And he's that's some 1,300 runs behind Joe Root. But he's been their second best scoring batsman. So they've decided to leave him out and bring Crawley in. And then they've also dropped Ollie Pope, who is who they believe going to be their next great young batsman, and they brought back Johnny Bairstow. Now, if you were going to bring Bairstow in, that's fine if you want to make a change, but surely he has to come in for Joss Butler and then keep. Because Joss Butler, despite his uh, efforts in Adelaide trying to hold off the Australians, hasn't done anything with the bat at all, and his glove work has been terrible. So surely Bairstow comes in and keeps and bats at seven, and Pope is retained. So mixed messages again there from the English camp. And of course, once again, neither of those things worked, because both of those batsmen failed in both innings. So we come to what has to be looked at as we move forward for England. Now, for me, the worst thing that could happen for England now is that they win one of the last two tests, perhaps draw in Sydney and win in Hobart. 
And if that was to happen, and it was a 3-1 series, England could go home and they, their media will jump up and down and justify this as, oh, we've turned the corner, everything's going to be okay from here on end. That would be the worst thing that could happen for England at this point in time. I'm not saying that they should you know, go out there and lose 5-0, or 4-0 for that matter. But if they were to win a test and do it with Australia's shortcomings, which we'll come to shortly, then you can bet that the media and the team itself will come out and say, yes, look, we've worked out what we did wrong. It's a shame we've lost the Ashes, but 2022, we're going to turn it all around. They're not going to. There are so many problems in that team that this isn't going to happen with this squad. And they need to be on to find, able to find new players. Now, I don't know how they're going to do that because if you look at the county system at the moment, the county system is filled with Colpac players. It's filled with overseas imports. And they're the ones who are scoring all the runs and taking all the wickets. So they don't have any Englishmen currently in county cricket because they've spent the last five years concentrating so much on white ball cricket in order to win the World Cup, which they did in 2019, and hopefully the T20 World Cup, which they didn't this year, but we'll certainly be pushing for again next year, the county cricket and four-day cricket has gone out the window. So there are no good young players in those uh, teams, in the county teams, who are making any runs or taking wickets. And if you go through the averages from last season and the aggregates, you'll see that that's exactly the case. So what do they do? Well, the problem that they've got at the moment from my perspective, is that they have a sole selector who is also the coach of the team. So Chris Silverwood is the coach of England. He is the sole selector for the England team. Now, how is that possible? How is he seeing people in county cricket if he's also the coach and he has to go wherever England go, that's where he is? How much county cricket is he seeing? How much second 11 cricket is he seeing? How How is he judging the players coming through if he's not actually seeing them firsthand. Now, that is a major problem. There, there is no way that you can run the English cricket team as the sole selector and coach as you would a Premier League soccer team or anything like that or a rugby league team. You can't do that kind of thing in cricket because you need to be able to spread wide and see these guys playing live at the ground to see what the conditions are like, to see how they're performing under the conditions that they're all playing. I mean, you might have a team that goes out and gets 120 runs and a guy might make 60. It might be the worst wicket in the world, and he might have made a, a terrific innings that is worthy of selection, but because the team's been bowled for 120, everyone just says, oh, well, you know, the bowling was too good, the batting was ordinary, we don't have to worry about that. The selector's job is to go and see that, and judge those performances on what he sees. You can't do that if you're a single selector. You need to have a panel. Now, Australia's as well, which I do want to come to, currently only have three, and they also have the coach involved. Now, I disagree with that, and I'm sure I've said that on these programs before. But surely for England's sake, they need to get out there and find people who are willing to go and be selectors and find these things out. Now, if you want it to be someone, say, like Alistair Cook, who is still playing county cricket and has signed up to play for another two years of county cricket. Now, here's a guy who's played for England. He's captain England. He's scored more runs for England than any other cricketer in test cricket. Surely there's a guy who could also be a selector and suggest people that he's playing against or playing with and saying, yes, these are the kind of guys we need in the English cricket team. 
I don't, I mean, that's a conflict in a way, but surely someone like Alistair Cook would be willing to do that kind of job if it was going to benefit English cricket. Um, there are several other people out there who could do that job and do that role, and they just need to be offered the incentive to go and do it. And surely the incentive at the moment for England is, let's make English cricket great again, because they really need that at the moment, especially in Test cricket, because if they don't get that, they are not going to improve. The other problem England has, of course, is Captain Joe Root. Now, if anyone has listened to ABC this summer, they would have heard Ian Chappell every hour or so getting on and pretty much bagging Joe Root for half an hour or 40 minutes every time he's been on the radio. Now, that's not to say that he's wrong, because the things that he has said ad nauseum have basically been that Joe Root is a, is a poor captain but an unlucky captain. Now, that's fine. We just don't need to hear about it all summer every time Chappelle's been on the radio, and we have had to, and that has been painful. The point was made very early on, you didn't need to go on with it. So what do England do? Well, Joe Root obviously will not want to give up the captaincy, but they need a change of leadership and they need a change of tactics, and the only person who can do that is obviously Ben Stokes. Now, when Stokes has had time in the middle when Joe Root's been off the field over the last 12 months, uh, or sorry, two years, because of course he didn't play that much this year, you've seen in him natural leadership quality and some tactical nous about how he goes about things, and he does things differently from Joe Root. So perhaps it's time that the England selector slash selectors suggest that Joe Root stands down from the captaincy, and that Ben Stokes is given a chance to show what he can do. Now, perhaps that won't work, and perhaps Ben Stokes doesn't want that extra pressure and extra added role, and that would be fair enough. But they need a change there at the top, and someone's got to have to do it, because if they don't, they're going to continue to go in this fashion where things seem to just roll along without any change, hoping that something will happen and hoping that Anderson will find a breakthrough or hoping that Ben Stokes will play another masterclass innings, one of which he hasn't played for two years. So England have got a lot of problems ahead. And like I said, I'll finish with this thought, is that the worst thing that could happen for them now is for them to actually win a test out here in the last two tests. Because if they go back home thinking that they've solved the problems that they've had on this tour, then those things aren't going to get solved and English cricket is not going to improve. Probably some of you who are listening to this, or five or six of you, would think that if I said something in the way that, well, Australia have managed to win this series so far 3-0, but they haven't played good cricket, you'd probably think I'm an idiot. And that's fair enough, because you're probably right. But I think you'll find that Australia's batting has not been terrific. And in many ways, we've been very fortunate. Uh, Warner, Labuschagne have both been dismissed on no balls. Both have been dropped a number of times in the field. And those two in particular have scored the majority of Australia's runs. So if they had been dismissed earlier in those first two tests, 
Who knows what could have actually been the result at this point in time. It could still have been 3-0, don't get me wrong. But the fact that they were given extra chances to move on and score their their 90s uh, is a massive difference in this series because Labuschagne hasn't looked comfortable and the fact that he's fought his way through it is terrific and that's that's one of the great qualities he has as a current test batsman and one of the same he's had to fight really hard to get runs and Steve Smith as well has found trouble scoring runs and even when he made his 90 he looked very awkward and, and not really able to be fluent in his stroke making. So the English bowlers have done their job in that respect in the fact that the Australians have not been fluent, they have not been terrific with the bat, but they seem to have fought harder than some of the English batsmen and they've been more fortunate in the fact that they have been reprieved by no balls and also dropped a number of times. We had a great innings, of course, from Travis Head in Brisbane and also we haven't seen the best yet of Cameron Green. So, and Alex Carey scored a 50, but hasn't done any more than what Tim Payne used to do at the bat to this point. In fact, it was only the tailenders and the bowlers who got Australia the lead that they got in Melbourne that it then enabled them to bowl England out for less. So, Australia's wins have been uh, solid wins where the batting has not been as uh, dominant as the scoreline suggests. So we have two more tests to go, and you would expect that the same top six, top seven even, is going to be selected for all of those games. And that means Kawaja is still sitting on the bench, uh, and that means that we still have this problem where we don't really know who is next in line if these guys fail or get injured. And Australia's shield... Uh, Sheffield Shield season, of course, is uh, on hiatus because of the Big Bash. So no one's getting any first-class cricket, and we won't know what happens with that until that starts up again at the end of January. So looking forward, Australia goes to Pakistan shortly, and then I think they also play in either Sri Lanka or, or Bangladesh this year. So we're going back to the subcontinent where the conditions are going to be completely different from what we've faced here. And we have to be ready for that. And even though we're basking on the in you know, the, the warmth of uh, an Ashes Series victory and a, a T20 World Cup victory, things for Australia still have a few things to be sorted out. The bowling, on the other hand, has been terrific. And the fact that we've now seen Michael Nisa have a test debut, Jai Richardson is back in the fold, and... Scott Boland has come and had a test debut as well and done so well, is a great thing for the bowling stocks, given that when uh, James Pattinson retired before the series started, we thought we'd uh, be a little bit short in the fast bowling stocks. We still need to find out if we have another spinner, and we may well find that out in Sydney with uh, Mitchell Swepson being touted as getting a test debut as well in the Sydney test. And we need to find one because if we're going to the subcontinent, there are going to be times when we need two spinners. And at the moment, Swepson looks like the next best bet. So the bowling has been terrific and we haven't, we've only seen Hazelwood for one test. Uh, Mitchell Stark, despite uh, the doom and gloom from uh, 
the one and only Shane Warne, has proven him wrong again. Uh, but it, Stark has been terrific this summer. And even though it's not every spell that is terrific, he has been right on the money when he's needed to be with that new ball. And he's, he's made the inroads that Australia has needed. And it was funny that after Brisbane, when he, we went to Adelaide and he became the senior bowler because both Hazelwood and Cummins missed out, that he led the attack. And I think that actually helped his bowling and his performance. And he took that to Melbourne with him as well. So that's been terrific to see. Now, there's a possibility that he may not play both of the remaining tests. It may be time to give him a rest, uh, which would be a rest and not a Shane Warne sacking and never to be seen again. And that's fair enough given that if Hazelwood's fit again and Richardson's fit again, we have those guys who can come in and, and fulfil that role and still have Nisa and Boland there who have now played a test match and know what test match cricket's like. So Australia's fast bowling stocks are good. Our spinning stocks, we still don't know about, and that's where we need to be able to see Swepson in a test match, and there is no better time than playing him now in Sydney. We go from there to look at the captaincy role, and at the moment it's difficult to see exactly where we're at. Cummins and Smith seem to work really well together in Brisbane. Of course, Cummins missed out because of COVID uh, or COVID-related issues in Adelaide, and Smith returned to the, the captaincy and again did a good job. And then Cummins returned to get in Melbourne and didn't have much to do once again because the Poms just kept falling over. So we're probably still yet to see this new leadership group uh, under any sort of real pressure. And only then will we be able to find out whether this situation is going to hold going into the future. There's some talk of uh, Warner, who's now turned 35, as to how much longer his test career has got to go. Uh, Australia's problems in the opening department are not unlike England's, except that we still have Warner there who has been the long-term tenant, which is what England had with Alistair Cook until he retired uh, some three years ago. And since then, England have been trying desperately to find an opening partnership and can't seem to find anyone to fill that role. Marcus Harris has been given his chance and a lengthy chance this summer despite some lowish scores in the tests. And his 70-odd in that first innings uh, in Melbourne was more runs combined than England made in their second innings. But it was more the fact that he spent that time at the crease and although he played a miss and got beaten several times, he didn't allow that to unsettle him. So that's a good sign because... If he wants to be the long-term tenant there, he needs to be able to show that he can score those runs. It was only his third Test 50, and going forward, he probably needs at least one more score before the end of the summer if he wants to continue being uh, in that role without any pressure from behind. Again, like England, Australia now have three selectors again. Uh, we have a chairman of selectors in George Bailey. We have Justin Langer, who was the coach, and we have Tony Dottermade. So Australia now has a three-man selection panel, uh, which is much better than just having the one. But are they being able to be spread wide enough to watch all the cricket they need to? Now, probably five's too many. In the past, we have had five selectors with a chairman. Uh, but 
surely I would have thought that perhaps just one more, one more selector, a senior uh, ex-player of that kind of description, being able to be in that role to go around and have a look at uh, the cricket being played throughout Australia, second eleven as well, not only um, Shield cricket, uh, in order to make sure that we are able to find these next guys coming through and that they're getting the opportunities that they need at the right level. Because Australia's batting stocks, as we have still seen, are still pretty thin on the ground. There might be plenty of bowlers, but when it comes to batsmen, if you take Warner and Smith and Labashain out of that team, then we'd be in awful trouble trying to replace them. And we need to find those kids coming through now so that in the next 12 to 24 months, if and when they certainly Smith and Warner feel it's time to move on, that we have players coming in to replace them. But we've won the Ashes. That's the first part of the season, and that's what we needed to do. And now we need to go forward and start thinking about how are we going to cope on the subcontinent. And while that is a discussion for another day, Let's hope that the Australian selectors are already thinking that way. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. When it comes to the fourth test, and let's at this stage assume that it will go ahead despite uh, COVID still being around and affecting the England team in particular, but of course it's already affected Australia with uh, Pat Cummins missing the Adelaide test. What do both sides need to do to not only look to win the game, but also to go forward, as I said, into 2022? Well, for Australia, it basically comes down to they're going to pick probably the same sort of team. If Hazelwood was fit, you would expect that he would play and that uh, um, that Cummins will play and that, that Hazelwood will play. Uh, they do want, I'm sure, a situation where they can play Mitchell Swepson, which would mean resting one of the fast bowlers. So does that mean that Mitch Stark will have a rest and they will play Hazelwood and Cummins and then play the two spinners? Or does it mean that, I mean, obviously if Hazelwood's not fit, then perhaps they just go with the two spinners and those two guys and then Cameron Green. That puts a lot of extra pressure on Stark and uh, Cummins with the ball. And of course, along with Cameron Green, who... Uh, in Adelaide in the second innings on that last day, was told not to bowl in order to to manage him. So he's still under those sort of somewhat restrictions when it comes to his bowling so as not to, to force the issue with his back. You'd think if Sydney's a typical Sydney wicket, then the opportunity to play two spinners is too good to miss. And if that's the case then you would think that, that probably Stark being his home ground will play and his ability to reverse the ball and do the things he does to the tail and Cummins, and those would be the four. And then if you go to Hobart, perhaps Stark will get a rest there and then we'll bring in uh, Hazelwood and maybe Jai Richardson or Boland or Noosa, whoever they decide to bowl. Uh, but at this stage, you would think that that's sort of going to be Australia's outlook going into the fourth test and fifth test. For England, well, if they're looking at the squad they've got, I think everyone's had a game apart from uh, Don Bess, who in his defence probably deserves a chance in Sydney given that Leach has done very little in his two tests so far. But will they go with 
more pace or will they go with two spinners uh, and then rely on Stokes, who's obviously uh, not at 100% with the ball as well. It's a pretty difficult thing for them to go. And they, they at the moment, their faster bowlers have Australia in trouble. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, Anderson, Wood and Broad playing in Sydney and then Dom Best being the spinner and then Stokes being the fourth seamer. That would mean that Ollie Robinson has a rest. Now, his record is still terrific, but he has shown out here that for whatever reason, either he's not fit enough uh, or he uh, gets sore in, in second and third and fourth spells in the day, but you can see by his first four or five balls in a new spell when he's bowling at 110 clicks that he needs to do better than that. So perhaps it's time for him to have a rest. You bring in Broad, who's fresh. You keep Anderson going, who's in form, and you keep Wood going because he is the X factor with the pace. And then you have Don Bess, who comes in, who bowled quite well in the uh, Australia A versus England A game, and give him the opportunity to see how he goes on the Sydney wicket. And then that gives Stokes as the fifth seamer. So that would be the best balance for England. With their batting, I don't know what they do. You just throw caution to the wind, I guess. In the long run, to be honest, I think Pope has to come back in. Uh, would I play Butler? I, I don't think so. Do you play Bearstow? Perhaps you play Bearstow as an opener, which is what he's done in uh, one-day cricket and T20 cricket. Uh, but then who do you leave out? Do you leave Hamid out? Is he had enough? Do you bring Rory Burns back in? I think all you know is that Milan will bat at three and Root will bat at four. And then I think Stokes will bat at five, although I'd bat him at six. You could bat Pope at five and Stokes at six. And so then you've got to find two openers and a keeper out of the rest of the players they've got. And at the moment, does it really matter? Because you just don't think that any of them are really going to score any more than the others. So toss a coin, pick the names out of a hat, do whatever you like to do. Um, I think Rory Burns probably has to come back into that team. Uh, And so... If you were going to shake it up, perhaps Bearstow comes in for Butler. England have this big thing about uh, Joss Butler being a terrific batsman who can change a game. He has never shown that at test level. Not once has he been able to show that at test level. He fought hard in Adelaide, but he's never shown the kind of thing where he would be perhaps like an Adam Gilchrist type player who everyone in the world would like, future or past. Uh, who can change a game with a bat. And either he's got to change the way he bats in test cricket and just for, you know, forget everything he's been taught and just say, right, if I see the ball, I hit the ball. And if it comes off great and if it doesn't, the team just says, well, that's just the way it is. Or he's got to leave the team. And they go with Ben Folks, who, of course, isn't here anymore. He'll be the, the best opportunity to pick him. Uh but then they've just got to stand up and they've got to hope that their bowlers can continue to put Australia under pressure and keep them to scores of 250 and then find a way to get 400 themselves. And I, at the moment, you don't know how they're going to do that. Oh, just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. All righty, well... Thank you for putting up with my rambling once again. Uh, It has been a couple of weeks. I'm sorry. I've been rather busy with uh, 
junior rep cricket down here on the South Coast uh, to be able to sit down and actually put my thoughts to the, to the air. It is the last day of the year. So to everyone who's bothered to listen to an episode of this podcast or 10 episodes or all the episodes, I absolutely appreciate you spending the time to listen to me ramble on about things that I enjoy talking about. And if it's brought any pleasure to you at all, then it is more than worthwhile. And I hope that going into the new year, uh, you'll continue to stick around with me and see if I actually come up with anything that is worth listening to and uh, any new ideas I may be able to bring forward. So have a pleasant New Year's Eve. Um, I will be having a beer for each and every one of my listeners, so that comes to about 12 or 13 or something like that. And I look forward to having you listen to me in 2022. Cheers. Tell your story, walking pal. Straight right on top of you. I love them all. I want to book them. Get them up here. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.